Welcome to Literary Anything, our Marion Libraries podcast where we talk about anything literary and literary anything. I'm Jane. I'm Paula. Welcome. It's December. It's almost our last podcast episode for the year. This is one of two episodes that you'll hear from us this month. We're going to do a 2021 wrap-up episode in a couple of weeks, so stay tuned for that one. Yes. I'm looking forward to that. That's always a fun that one. That is to, a fun one. To record. Yeah. Uh, this month we read Devotion by Hannah Ken. Yes. Which we've been eagerly anticipating this book for most of the year. Yep. Really? So shall I talk about Hannah first? Or do uh, we do the do No, we, we do the blurb we first. We do the blurb. Yeah, yeah, sure. Do the blurb. You know, two years in. <laughs> can't remember the format. <laughs> 1836 Prussia. Hannah is nearly 15 and the domestic world of womanhood is quickly closing in on her. A child of nature, she yearns instead for the rush of the river, the wind dancing around her. Hannah finds little comfort in the local girls and friendship doesn't come easily until she meets Taya and she finds in her a kindred spirit and finally acceptance. Hannah's family are old Lutherans and in her small village, hushed worship is done secretly. This is a community under threat, but when they are granted safe passage to Australia, the community rejoices. At last, a place they can pray without fear, a permanent home, freedom. It's a promise of freedom that will have devastating consequences for Hannah and Taya. But on that long and brutal journey, their bond proves too strong even for nature to break. Mm, Lovely. Yeah. Now you're going to talk to us about Hannah? Yeah, sure. So most people know that Hannah's first novel was Burial Rights, which hit the publishing world with a bit of hype and mm. excitement. It, she released that in 2013. It's been translated into 30 languages. It's won ABO Literary Fiction Book of the Year Award, Indie Awards, Debut Fiction Book of the Year, Victorian Premier's Reading People's Choice Award, mm. shortlisted for the Women's Prize, it was the Guardian's first book award, it won the Stella Prize. It was <laughs> massive that year. And that book was part of Hannah's uh, thesis at uni. And famously, there was a, a bidding war for the manuscript when she first put it out there on the market. Her second novel, Good People, that came in 2016. That's another one that's been translated into lots of different languages. It's been shortlisted for awards. It was ABA Literary Fiction Book of the Year. It's been adapted. Both of her books previously have been optioned for films. Mm. Burial Rights with Jennifer Lawrence as Agnes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which is really cool. But that's been a few years. So who knows? You know, we these, don't know where these movie things, mm. they say it's been optioned and then you don't hear anything about it for 10 years. And then this is her third novel, Devotion, which came out last month. Hannah is co-founder of the Australian literary publication, Kill Your Darlings. She's a patron of World Vision Australia. She's written for the New York Times, the Saturday paper, the Guardian, the Age, Sydney Morning Herald. And she is one of our local authors. She is. Which is, she's an Adelaide Hills girl, which is really exciting. And we were also lucky enough to have Hannah last month for an author event. And we will, do we already have that out? Yes. <laughs> we'll talk about it more, I'm sure. Um, yes. I know I want to talk about it in this um, episode about devotion. But yes, yes, her talk is out already on the podcast the recording of it so check that out special edition episode so definitely worth listening to this episode and that one if you're planning on reading it yes so that's hannah she lives with her wife and her two children in the adelaide hills now jane you just said to listen to this and the talk before you read it but actually don't if no absolutely don't I mean, do it's, we do always do spoilers <laughs> in all of our episodes. You should always read the book first. But I feel like especially with this book, yes. if you have any desire to read this book, you should definitely read it first before yeah. listening to this. Yeah. Hannah's episode, the author talk episode, there's no spoilers in that. Yes. So feel free to listen to that but first. But don't listen to this one yet. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening now, stop. Stop. Read the book and then come back. <laughs> <laughs> so, as Jane said, this is set in 1836, Prussia, and Hannah lives with her family, who is her mother and father, and her twin brother, Matthias. And they are old Lutherans, as Jane said, and they are being persecuted in their country because of their faith. And Hannah is a bit of an odd child, a bit dreamy, a bit out there. She hears music coming from nature. 
I think the first scene, she's lying under a tree and listening to the music in the tree. And because of this, she's kind of shunned by her peers. There's a party at the beginning of the book that she goes to fetch her mother from. And when she's there, she realizes that the other girls in her community who are her age are there and she hasn't been invited. So she's kind of an outsider. And the other girls her age are kind of consumed with who they're going to marry, and Hannah's not really interested in that. And then a new family moves into their village, and they are also Lutheran, but the mother is what they referred to as a wend. And I'd never heard of that term before, had you? No, and I think it's like vend. Oh, it's a vend. Yeah. Oh, yes. Only, and I only know that because Hannah's Did she say it? it like. Yeah, Vend, which is a historical name for Slavic people. And so one day, Hannah encounters the daughter, Taya, in the forest. And I wanted to read that encounter because I thought it was poignant. And it goes like this. She was an apparition walking between hazy columns of trees, her outline growing clearer as she walked. It seemed for one small moment that we were underwater, I saw her breath stream as she heaved a crooked weight of kindling. I saw her through the cloud of my own breath and held it, the better to see her. She looked up and, seeing me watching her, stopped. I exhaled. The air hung with water, held its own breath as we regarded one another. The girl freed a hand from her bundle of sticks. I watched as she raised it, uncertain, then lifted my own palm. I thought you were a ghost, she said. Her voice was low, unsteady. I thought you were too. So that is their first meeting, the first meeting between Hannah and Taya. And they go on to form a very special bond. And Taya listens to Hannah when she says things like that she can hear music from um, nature and she doesn't discount it. And also Taya's mother is Anna Maria and she is maybe in that plane herself, which is perhaps why Taya is more open to that sort of thinking. And Anna Maria owns this book that has been passed down to her and from which she gets these herbal remedies. And it seems like she understands Hannah even better than Hannah's own mother does. So Hannah also has a bond with um, the mother, Anna Maria. And Anna Maria helps Hannah's mother birth her second daughter and from that, we learn that she is a gifted nurse and she's able to stop the bleeding that Hannah's mother experiences after the birth. And she says that is with the help of God. And during the childbirth, Taya tells Hannah that sometimes her mother, quote unquote, knows things. So that's kind of giving you a picture of who Anna Maria is. And the Lutheran families get word that they are going to get passage to South Australia where they will be free to practice their religion without persecution. And at first it's unclear whether Taya's family is going to be traveling with them. And so Taya tells Hannah that she will leave a stone on the gate to signal her if she is going to be able to go. And so I wanted to read another little quote, which really encapsulated Hannah's growing feelings for Taya. And it's during a scene where Hannah and her mom are sewing white work, which was another thing I never heard of. Basically, it's embroidering white thread onto white cloth. And when um, Hannah asks her mother why you would do something like sewing white thread on white cloth, her mother simply says, it befits the godly woman. And then Hannah goes on to say, Taya is like white work, I'm used. How so, asked Mama. Because of the color of her hair? Because you have to draw close to notice her beauty, I said. She has little flowers around each pupil, little yellow petals, but the rest of her eye is blue. Mama said nothing. When I glanced up, she was giving me a peculiar, searching look. Have you noticed? I asked. No, she said, eyes returning to the work in her lap. I remember wanting to say more to my mama. I wanted to tell her that there was a small freckle on the side of Taya's index finger, quite hidden from view, that she had a scar under her ear. I knew it was a burn, a splash of hot oil. I remember realizing in that moment that I wanted to tell Mama all the strange, small things I found pleasing about Taya and simultaneously understanding in some deep, unexamined way that I must never tell her, that I must hold these tiny things under my tongue and keep them to myself. Yeah, that was a beautiful way of explaining Hannah's feelings. Yeah, the depth um, of her feelings. Her feelings for Taya. And that they're more than just... Regular friendship. Yeah. Yeah. So after this, 
Hannah looks out her window and sees a stone on the gate, and so therefore knows that Taya is going to be traveling with them and, of course, is overjoyed. And then in this beautiful scene where Taya and Hannah are saying goodbye to the forest, which is a very special place for them, it's where they first met and where they spend a lot of their time, Taya kisses Hannah. So then I wanted to jump to their journey across the oceans from Prussia to South Australia, which takes six months. And Hannah Kent says that she's based this journey on the real journey of a ship called the Zebra. So even though this is a fictional account, she says that pretty much all of the bad, horrible things that happen in this book Mm. are based on real things. Yes, that's right. And this journey is six months of pure hell, I would say. Wouldn't you? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it sounds revolting. Revolting. And you can't escape because you're on a ship. Yeah. There's not enough space for all the families. Mm -hmm. The ship was not built for passengers. It was built as a cargo ship, so it was not fit for purpose. And because of that, these bunks that have been kind of haphazardly erected Mm. in order to house these people collapse in the middle of the night with people sleeping underneath them. And then they have to try and mend them with just whatever's on Mm. board the ship. The ship's doctor is a drunk and people are getting sick and of course not adequately treated because the doctor's drunk because they don't have what they need on board and just because of the terrible conditions and i mean the description of people mm. getting sick being sick <laughs> in the bunks mm. down below so you can imagine sick people oh first of all i forgot to mention that everybody is extremely seasick to begin with yeah the descriptions of the seasickness is just so vivid and so real you can almost smell the stale stench of old vomit and stale air it's quite um Visceral. Yeah. (laughs) And nobody escapes. She says nobody escapes the seasickness. Everybody is just horrifically, horrifically seasick. And I, do you get seasick? Yes. I get seasick. Yes. And it's like you want to die. Awful. (laughs) When you're stuck on a boat and you can't escape. So I can only imagine knowing that you're going to be on this ship for six months. And hearing people be sick. (sighs) And it seems like it goes for days and days and days. Yes. Just foul and then people get beyond sick actually Mm. sick as well so you can imagine vomit diarrhea all at the bottom of the ship with the ship tossing and turning with the weather so the smell i mean uh, yeah out of the bowels of hell we've got buckets for toilets and just revolting revolting and so people the well people are forced to try and sleep above deck Mm. and so are therefore open to all of the elements of the sea and the sun and all of that. And then they find out that Typhus Mm -hmm. has broken out on the ship. And I had to remind myself what Typhus was. Mm, I had to look it up. So did I. Yeah. Because I thought it might have been an old-fashioned way of saying typhoid, but it's not. It's not. Typhus is, I've Googled it as well, Mm. disease caused by rickettsia and orientia bacteria. Basically. mites, fleas, lice. Basically, lack of hygiene yes. and uncleanliness. Yes, and poor sanitary sanitation. conditions. Yeah. yeah. So, exactly this atmosphere was rife Foul. for that. Of course. <laughs> and on top of that, they had these barrels of water on the ship, but they realized that some of the barrels were not new when the water was put into them. Mm. So they previously stored whiskey or vinegar or whatever. Mm. And when they opened this water and Taya took a drink from it and immediately she was like, this tastes like poison. Mm. But then they were forced to drink it. Yeah, so because there's a lack, was of, lack of fresh water. There's incidences where parts of the ship get flooded and so they lose lots of their food. So there's lack of fresh water, lack of food, disease, just everything... You kind of already imagine about those early ships that travel for months to get to Australia or whatever country. Mm. Ugh. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> and then Taya gets sick. 
and Hannah is trying her best to care for her as, her, as Anna Maria, um, Taya's mother, and she is in extreme pain, and Hannah is trying with all her might to will her to be better, and she talks of Taya smelling not like Taya anymore, but of turning meat. Mm. Ah. <laughs> oh. Yes, and looking grey and yeah. looking, yeah. So it seems as though Taya is not going to make it, and then Hannah gets sick. And Hannah's barely aware of what's going on around her. She's sort of hearing voices, kind of partially aware of people doing things around her. And then she says she experiences a sudden absence of pain. She says it was like before and after. There was pain and then there was none. And then the next section is called after and Hannah slowly realizes that Taya has lived and that she has died. Mm. That was really beautifully written. That whole part where Taya is sick and Hannah is sick. Her death was so connected to the universe and she talks about hearing the whales and she's connected to the oceans and nature. And it reminded me quite a lot of Hamnet. Did you know I was going to say oh, this? Oh, no, that's not what I thought you were going to say. Oh, go on, yeah. This section reminded me so much of when Hamnet takes the place of his twin sister. The twin sister is very sick, mm. about to die. And then sort of this magical, supernatural something happens and essentially Hamnet sacrifices himself to save his sister. I felt there was a little element of that, that Hannah sacrificed herself to save Taya in a way. She's talked so much about putting her energies and good thoughts and praying basically that Taya lives and then so much so that almost like she weakens herself and and dies. Oh, that is a brilliant comparison. Yeah, it reminded me very much of that and it was so sad. What I thought you were going to say and what I remembered as I was reading this part, because it took me by surprise. Yes. I was not expecting that at all. And then I vaguely recalled that I read and then subsequently forgot, which I'm glad I did, Mm. that somebody compared this to Alice Siebold's The Lovely Bones. Oh, yes. That's a good comparison. Yeah. Yeah. I was not expecting that either because that happens a good... There's still a lot of book to go. It's pretty much halfway through, yeah. When Hannah dies, and because I don't know how, but I've I managed to avoid any spoilers, and I guess because we read it so soon after release as well, I was just like, well, what the hell's the rest of the book about then? (laughs) What do you mean? This is supposed to be a love story. Supposed to be nice and not sad. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Same. Same. Wasn't gonna cry. Yes. So then they bury Hannah at sea. Yes. And the amazing visuals that Hannah Kent is able to conjure during this part, Hannah will be walking around feeling like she's still alive. Like it, mm. she really, it's a process for her to understand that she is no longer living. It's not like in movies or other books where mm. it, it's obvious that the person is a ghost and they are like sort of moving, walking things. through walls. And <laughs> yeah, it's like she's still on earth, but just nobody sees her or interacts yes. with her mostly. Yeah. So she'll f- be feeling like she's still alive and then suddenly she'll feel a swell of salt water salt water will start to pour Mm. out of her reminding her and all of us that actually her body's at the bottom of the ocean yeah which wow i know something you hate is purple prose Mm. and it's hard to describe why this is not purple prose at all there's a lot of very vivid Flowery is absolutely not the right word, but mm. very descriptive prose, mm. almost poetic, lyrical mm. type writing. And it's hard to describe why it works so well. I it think just does. Maybe because it's poetic and lyrical. Yeah. It's not in a way overdone yeah. or it doesn't make you roll your eyes or mm. any of that sort of stuff. Mm. Or skip through it sometimes if it's a book full of overly descriptive passages. I'm just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Get down to the dialogue. But it's not like that. That's it, exactly. Mm. You definitely want to keep reading. Yeah. And so 
eventually they arrive in Adelaide. And one of the things I didn't think about when you are in the 1800s and you arrive somewhere on a huge ship is that you can't just toddle off the ship onto the land right away. No. You, it, t- it took them weeks to yeah. get everybody <laughs> From off. the Port Adelaide, essentially. Right. Through, and they walked there. Yeah. They walked from Port Adelaide to vaguely where Handorf is. Yeah, and, and they couldn't carry all of their belongings, so they would have to leave mm. some and go back and forth and back and forth yes. to try and bring their belongings along with them. It was like two steps forward, mm. one step back, kind of. And plus along the way, you know, they needed to feed themselves and, and shelter. provide shelter yeah. and, and all of that. So yeah, they were living in little huts essentially yeah basically like lean to's branches yeah because there was nothing of course yeah which i don't know you don't think about the logistics of mm. it yeah. really in detail you just think oh yeah hand off they got here and they built stone houses straight away of course they didn't <laughs> like, yeah of course they didn't <laughs> this book was just so perfect for really getting you into the heads of these people and reminding you that these are real people just like we are. They experience all the same emotions that we experience and how difficult it would have been to arrive in a country where there's essentially nothing in terms of what you've been used to with food and shelter and all of that. Yeah, Yeah, access to things, that's right. And having to start from square one. Mm, That's right. So part two time begins to take on a different quality in the second part of the book because it is told from Hannah's perspective obviously and now she's a ghost spirit ghost yes something like that yeah I would agree (laughs) with both of those so it, it sort of seems to rapidly go through years of time essentially while she's spending time being with her family being with Taya still observing, listening in on conversations, but also retreating to nature, I guess, and sort of becoming at one with trees or animals or the earth. And quite literally realising that she can inhabit a tree. That's right. Mm. As Paula mentioned earlier, Anna Maria has these two books that have been handed down one is sort of herbal remedies and things like that the other one's perceived as being a more of a darker arts type book that will help people to call to spirits and bring back the dead and all of that sort of darker mysterious stuff so Taya uses that book to call out to Hana to get her to come to that to to her that's right that's right hannah hears here and so she arrives back and so much has changed and people have built houses and there's gardens and food being produced and she visits her brother and her family and and then visits Anne maria and eventually finds her way to taya and one really made me feel a bit emotional was that taya had all the little posts around her new house she has left little stones on top of on the top posts. of the post to to signal to Hannah that I'm I'm here mm. and come and find me essentially yeah. I should mention that Hans who is one of the neighbors from the village when they still lived in Prussia and traveled along with them mm. so is in their age group and is one of the men that Christiana, who's one of the other women in the village who is always thinking about mm. marriage, has kind of has her eye on. And anyway, eventually Hans asks Taya to marry him. Yes. And Taya has all these, of course, conflicting feelings about that, but eventually agrees to marry him. But still often feels Hannah's presence mm. so powerfully. Hannah talks about tucking herself in next to Taya yeah. and, you know, stroking Taya's hair and and it seems as though Taya can sense that she's there. Yes, that's right. And so obviously, yes, Taya feels uh, conflicted and Hannah feels all these weird emotions, including jealousy and all mm. of that. But yeah, so as well as being able to inhabit trees, she inhabits haunts. Mm. And did yeah. that remind you of anything? <laughs> Do you mean the movie Ghost? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I do. (laughs) 
when Patrick Swayze inhabits Whoopi Goldberg's. No, wait. Yes, yes, it did make me think of that. Hans is quite open-minded about it all, really, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, for a man of the 1830s. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. (laughs) Surprisingly accepting. I mean, you you find out also that Hans also loved Hannah. That's right. And yeah, he he confesses that he was going to ask Hannah to to marry him. Yeah, it's almost Mm. like Taya is a connection to Mm. to Hannah still that Hans recognizes, and probably vice versa as Mm. well a little bit. Mm. So. Yes, Hans is embodied by Hannah. Yeah. And, and he's still there and Hannah's still there. And all three of them all are still are there. All sort of there and present. And then they make love. And then Taya becomes pregnant. <laughs> by Hans, obviously. But <laughs> there's a, clearly a, a supernatural connection between mm-hmm. all of them somehow. Yeah, so we get to part three and... Taya has had her baby, Johan. Hannah is Johanna. So she's named the baby after Hannah. And Christina, who is sort of the antagonist of the the story. If there is one, I mean Yeah, it's a low key yeah, yeah. low key antagonist throughout the book. Someone who is is jealous and bit of a mean girl. Yeah, a bit of a mean girl. Mean yeah. girl. <laughs> That's right. Christina comes to visit Taya to see the baby. And all along, Christina and her mother have been accusing Taya and Anna Maria of witchcraft, Mm. essentially, and saying they've got this book and it worships the devil and it brings back evil spirits and whatever. Mm. They've um, managed to avoid that being confirmed this whole time. Mm. But Christina comes to visit the baby and then Taya happens to have the book fairly visible at the fireplace and Christina sees it and throws the book in the fire. Mm. The book begins to smoulder and really smoke the house out. So Christina leaves. Taya goes out to try and get some firewood to stoke the fire up so it actually flames up and stops just smouldering and smoking the house out. And didn't you think she's distraught by the idea that the book is gone because that's her connection to Hannah? Yes, yes, that's Mm. right. So she's very distraught. She goes out to the wood pile and... As she's reaching for some firewood, she gets bitten by a brown snake. She stumbles back into the house and she's got the baby with her and the house is filling up with smoke and she succumbs to either the snake bite or smoke inhalation. But she manages to put the baby in the crib. The baby's in the crib. So when Hans comes home, he finds that the baby's screaming, crying. Yes, yes, but Taya... Has, has died, died which I wasn't expecting that to happen either were you I didn't know I didn't yeah. know how she was going to complete this yeah. love story and then you get to the very last chapter which is called now Hana is still obviously around she realizes that Taya has died and she's kind of waiting hoping and then it happens I fall to my knees and she kneels with me. Taya, Taya in front of me, both of us kneeling under a cathedral of sky. Love runs through her like a seam of gold. It runs through me and we are illuminated. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful ending, isn't it? Yeah, it's lovely. And again, I highly, highly, can't recommend highly enough listening to Hannah Kent's talk in conjunction with reading this book. One of the things that she talked about was that she worried that... With her first two books, Burial Rites was set in Iceland, The Good People was set in Ireland, and she was worried that her familiarity with this country would hinder her ability to see Mm. it as a foreigner would. Yes. And then she read an excerpt of Hannah experiencing Australia for the first time, and I just thought she did it so well as somebody who has been a foreigner and experienced Australia for the first time. She needn't have worried because she did such a beautiful job of it and she reads that section in the talk so beautifully and she also explained that she wanted to approach this she called it a queer love story without making it a narrative of shame or of punishment yes um, that she wanted it 
to be celebratory. And I really think she achieved that, particularly yeah. with some of the sections that I, I've read. Mm. And part of the reason why I wanted to read them is because I really feel like she achieved that. She also talks about, uh, this book has got a lot of religion in it. There's a lot of religious talk throughout the whole book because, I mean, that's the whole point. They're Lutherans that were exiled to to Australia. She also didn't want to pit religion against same-sex relationships. She didn't want there to be that rub against the two viewpoints. Mm. And I think that was beautifully managed as well. Yeah. yeah. And it would have been a fine line to walk, I imagine. Really tricky. Yeah. And it, you do read some of these queer love stories and they're always they're heart-wrenching. It was so nice to read something that was a just a love story. Yeah, and she recognised that her feelings were unusual based on what she saw in her mm. community. But yet, yes, there was no shame or feeling of punishment. She just no, or recognized, I'm a bad person or anything. Yeah, she just, yeah. But there was also, how can this be? Yeah. Because she didn't see it anywhere else. Except for there was one small bit when they're in South Australia and she's a ghost and she sees these two men mm. living together yeah. and she realises that could have been a possibility for yeah. Taya and me. Yes, that's right. Mm. I forgot about that bit. Yeah, yeah. It's, in a lot of ways, it's a really beautifully wholesome love story. Yeah. It's very, it's a, not naive, it's like so pure yeah, of person to person rather than it being about sex or any of that sort of stuff layered over it Mm. either. It reminded me, her writing in this book reminded me very much of Isabella Lunde's writing. And also, I don't know if you read the book from a thousand million years ago, Like Water for Chocolate by Laura Esquivel. That had that element of magic and supernatural, but also historical fiction as well. I felt so encompassed by this story mm, just, transported yeah mm. I just felt surrounded by mm, it yeah. while I was reading it and I love love and I love feelings and <laughs> this book has got so much of both of those it does yeah uh, and I really appreciated Hannah's storyline is so connected to the environment and to the earth I really appreciated that I, I liked that connection that she had mm. one of the other things I wanted to mention and something else she talked about was that she wanted to show how single-minded a culture can be about establishing their roots mm. without thinking about what harm they could possibly yes. be doing and just one other bit that I wanted to read that kind of exemplifies that she's talking about um, her people and them settling the land It was strange to see the land so quickly transformed. On Sundays when the congregation gathered around the humble daub church, Elder Christian turned his Bible to the book of Joshua, and the bush was compared to the wall of Jericho. God would help them bring it down. I could see the triumph in the shoulders of the men when they were able to finally wrest the more stubborn of trees from the air, and I understood that had I too been clearing the soil each day, I would have felt the hot dash of relief in my body when progress was made." But from my deep abiding within heartwood, root, and leaf vein, I could more clearly feel that to clear the land was to scar it, and to triumph in that scarring seemed sinister and unholy. I did not sing the praises of felled trees. I did not sing the glory of sown seed potatoes, bags of wheat at one pound a bushel. So good. Yeah, because... Mm. She mentions that she would never want to write from the perspective Mm. of the Indigenous people because that's clearly not her story to tell. Mm. So I thought it was brilliant how what she's done is made herself the earth, essentially, by being this ghost that's kind of inhabited the earth and come at it from that perspective that acknowledging that had she been still on earth with her people, she Mm. would have rejoiced as they had. But because she had this other perspective she could see that they were really scarring the earth yeah and it, while i was reading this um we were driving <laughs> around my ponga and i was like looking out and i was saying to brett how beautiful i mm. thought the land was and he actually said to me without having read this book mm. obviously mm. said actually no i don't see it that way because there should have been trees all over these hills like i was looking at them thinking how beautiful they looked yeah. rolling and mm. but what he saw was bald yeah hills that had all their trees removed mm. so yeah that really got to me reading this and having that experience around the same time yeah 
And I just thought Hannah did such a beautiful job. So well, well thought through, yeah. well planned and well executed. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get teary in this book? I didn't. Didn't you? I no, did. I did you? Did you? Of course I did. Mm. Yeah. I think while I, like I said, so appreciate Hannah's mastery of the written word and the beautiful way that she can portray all of these things, I am not a fan of this kind of spiritual no. ghost yeah. narrative. And like I said, it wasn't what I was expecting. And to be honest, when she died, I was disappointed because mm. I wanted to see her and Taya and their relationship developing in real life. Yeah. And also I wanted more of th- what their life was like establishing themselves in the Adelaide Hills. Yes, I thought there would be more of that. So the whole second part was not at all what I was expecting. That's but right. I appreciate it because it's so different. Like I've not read a historical queer romance with a ghost. <laughs> you know, all of that. I know. How fantastic. It's how so, fantastic. Yeah. It's really, it's one of a kind really from yeah. a storyline and thematically very different. I know. I feel weird saying that there was a part of me that was disappointed because yeah. I really did. I know what you mean. Uh, yeah. Because I, I was anticipating it to go differently and part of me was like, oh, I just wanted them to be together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they were. They, they were. were. <laughs> I'm just not spiritual enough for this. Well, the other funny thing is when I was looking back on this to write my notes, mm. there was a lot of foreshadowing. Yes. Of of this, it, like in in the bit that I read about them thinking that they were ghosts initially yes. when they saw each yes. other. Taya says that her mother Anna Maria had a premonition that she would meet her ghost at one point when mm. she was first introduced to Hannah, and then. Taya has a dream that she's on a ship and Hannah was dead beside her. So mm. there were lots of, hello, this is what's going to happen. And yeah. it still took oh, me, me by either. surprise. Of course, me either. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So what else have you read this month? I've read two other books. One of them was The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. So this won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for fiction. So mm-hmm. this is um, why Such I wanted a fancy to read it. <laughs> so fancy. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> but the school in this book is based on a real school in Florida that operated for over 100 years and closed in 2011. So The Nickel Boys are based on real boys from this school, which was known for rampant emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. Yeah, Jane's making a face like, oh my God, no, horrible. And it's obviously about racism in America. And I was prepared, obviously, for this to be a hard read because I knew what it was about. But it's actually bearable because most stuff happens kind of off screen, Mm -hmm. quote unquote. Mm -hmm. So yeah, really an important book for understanding racism in America. And yeah, so well done. The other book I read is called Fun Home, a Family Tragic Comic by Alison Bechdel. So this is, I said last month that I read a book, Lawn Boy, because it was on my radar because lots of parents in the U.S. wanted to ban it from schools. This is another one that came onto my radar for the same reasons. It's not a new book. It was published in 2006. People have been trying to ban it pretty much ever since. It's a coming-of-age story where the protagonist is coming to terms with being a lesbian and also finding out that her father, who has died, possibly by suicide, had had many affairs with men throughout her life. Mm-hmm. Significant for me because it's my first graphic novel. I brought it oh. so you can see it. Wow. Yeah, the first time I've read a graphic novel. And I read that it took her seven years to complete this book, in part because she had this artistic process where she photographed herself in poses and used those to sketch all of the graphics in the book. I really enjoyed this. I'm so glad this was Mm. my first graphic novel because it was just so well done. There are some fairly explicit scenes, but it's about so much more than that. And I often feel with these bannings, these 
parents and other people who want to ban these books, they focus so hard on these like minuscule aspects of the book and they just miss the whole yeah, greater the, story. The bigger picture. Yeah. yeah. Which is about this very dysfunctional family and the author's grappling with coming to terms about her complicated relationship with her father and the way she grew up and the complicated man that he was. Mm. So, yeah, if you two have never read a graphic novel before and want like an quote unquote adult graphic novel, this is, this was my entry into it and I think it's a good one. Good job. Mm. Mm. How about you, Jane? So from one wonderful historical fiction book to one that's not. Oh, no. (laughs) I read Dark Tides by Philippa Gregory. I own this book. I got given this for Christmas last year and I've only just gotten around to reading it. This is the second book in a new series that she's writing. The first one was called Tidelands and that was a really well-received her books tend to be quite slow and they're not for everybody she usually writes about historical fiction about royalty but Tidelands was one of her first or maybe her first about just an ordinary person not based on a real person at all she was just an ordinary poor peasant type person and so this is the second story in that this was so awful did you read the first one Yes, and I loved oh, the first oh. one. That's why I wanted to read. I've been really looking forward to reading this second one. Wow. It was awful. The Thailand's solid, good historical fiction. This one, it was poorly executed. I'm not even going to bother talking about the storyline. Mm. Poorly executed, a transparent and extraordinarily unlikely plot. It was, oh. it was just drama, flat characters. There's a whole unnecessary plot with one of the characters who is the brother of the main character moves to the new world, to New England in this book. And so every third chapter is from his perspective in New England, which has zero (laughs) bearing on the rest of the the storyline. I ended up just skipping those whole entire (laughs) chapters because I was like, I just need to get this done now. Oh, no. So I ended up, you literally did not need any of that storyline there was no interconnectedness of his storyline and Eleanor the main character's storyline it was just I know but some people loved it good reads it was really mixed there's been good reviews and bad reviews did you read that after the Hannah Kent one yeah I mean I suspect that might have big shoes to fill been a cast a shadow over that book now, I've, of course, read A Carnival Snackery by David Oh, Sedaris yes, yes. Month. And it was a massive book. Huge. Wow, well huge. done. So that was a super long book. It's the second part of his diary. So this one is t- 2003 to 2020. Outward observations of life, encounters with people and family, commentary on world events. And you'd read his first. Usual stuff. Yes. 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 This is the one that I've been waiting to tell you about. Guess what I read this month? I what have I been saying for years that I'm never going to read that book? Oh, I don't know. I can't wait. I read Day, Any <gasps> Ordinary Day by Lee oh, Sales. Oh, yay. <laughs> Jane has been saying to me, I can't wait to record this podcast so I can tell you which <laughs> book I've read. And I was just like, oh, whatever. whatever. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm so excited. What do you think? I loved <gasps> this book. Of course you did, because Lee Sales is the best. <laughs> this was such a great book. So well researched. It's about how people deal with trauma and move on from trauma and what happens after traumatic life-changing events. So she interviews a number of people who have had awful things happen to them, basically. You know, Stuart Diver, she interviewed Walter Mickack, whose wife and children were killed in the Port Arthur Massacre, and then some lesser-known people whose husband died suddenly, mm. those sorts of things, and then interviews coroners and lawyers and counsellors and police officers and detectives. It's so well-researched. I've been avoiding it because I thought it would be so traumatising. Mm. I have an overactive imagination about awful things that can happen anyway, and I literally lose sleep about something happening to the children or Mm. whatever. So I thought this would just ramp that up Mm. even more. But it was actually really comforting and positive. So if you are someone like that, (laughs) don't avoid this book because it, it, 
gives you a comfort. Yeah, it, how guess. people come to terms with the worst yeah, things. The worst, worst things. So it's candid, it's really warm, it's very easy to digest. Lots of statistics, facts and figures throughout the book, but that didn't... It wasn't dry. No, it wasn't mm. dry. So yeah, like I said, I've been avoiding this, <laughs> even though it's won tons of awards, everybody raves about it. It's one of the most popular books of the last few years with our library customers. It was my favourite book of it was your 2019, last, I yes, think. Yes, it was your pick of the year. So I was so worried about it, but it, it was wonderful. I know it's such a brilliant it's book. A great book. Didn't you, and yeah, you say candid. Like, don't didn't you love the way that Lee Sales was so honest about even her foibles? Yes, and in in interviewing people in vulnerable and, yeah. and tragic the, times. The parts about journalism practices is really interesting, fascinating, very very interesting. And I listened to it as an audio book too. Oh, and, and it's does read she, by Lee Sales? Yes, I feel like I should. I want to read it again or listen to it just because it's great as an audio book. Yeah. Yeah. So, literary news. The Highlander reboot. This is one that Jane um, sent me the article about. There's a Highlander reboot and it is scheduled to begin filming next year. It's funny when you sent this to me and it said it's beginning filming in 2022. I thought, that's so far in the future. (laughs) And then I realized, oh, actually, no, that's like next month. A couple of months. (laughs) Yeah. So Henry Cavill, am I saying his name right? Yes, I think so. Is going to be Connor McLeod and the director is going to be Chad Stahelski who did the John Wick Mm. uh, films. People who love Highlander love Highlander. Yeah. I've not read any, watched any... None of it. You either? No. There's a billion books in oh, the series. I did watch it like way back. Yeah. Because it came out, I mean, how many decades ago, oh, wasn't it? I think I was so in high school. old when you look yeah. at it now. Mm. I think Henry Cavill's a good choice mm. and will be an appealing choice for fans. Yes. I read that. Initially, Ryan Reynolds was going to be wow. Connor McLeod, the director who was going to do it left and so ryan reynolds also decided to leave as well but wow imagine that mm. i think henry cavill's a better choice i'm a bit of a ryan reynolds fan so <laughs> he's canadian <laughs> you guys sticking together and then another bit of news um, we've talked about this a few times inventing anna our favorite about anna delvey we now have a date february 11th it's going to be premiering on netflix Yay! I have said it so many times. I cannot wait for this. You know Jane and I are going to be talking about this. (laughs) We (laughs) might do a special episode. We should. (laughs) That'd be funny. (laughs) (laughs) Can't wait. There's only a couple of things I picked out for new releases. One of them is Drew Barrymore's got a book out. It's her first lifestyle book. Uh Every celebrity just about ever is... (laughs) Dipping their toe into the lifestyle category mm. on Instagram. They're doing cooking, them releasing books. This one sounds kind of interesting. I like Drew Barrymore. Me too. So she's got this book coming out called Rebel Homemaker. It includes how she cooks, lives and finds happiness at home. She shares recipe stories, personal photos that how you too can live a healthy, delicious and joyful life. So this features lots of photos that she has taken herself and highlighting her connection she has to food, wellness, mental health. She shares personal essays and stories about female friendships, single parenting, the importance of self-care and alone time, and how to slow down and share the f- joy of family and food during special occasions and as a part of everyday life. Mm. So it sounds kind of visual and, yeah, I don't know, lifestyle light <laughs> kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Be interesting to see what that's like. This other one sounded quite interesting. This is a Bloomsbury book. It's called The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes. Ewan Forbes was born Elizabeth Forbes to a wealthy landowning family in 1912. It quickly became clear that the gender applied to him at birth was not correct. And from the age of six, he began to see specialists in Europe for help. With the financial means of procuring synthetic hormones, Ewan was able to live as a boy, then as a man, and was even able to correct the sex on his birth certificate in order to marry. Then in 1965, his older brother died and Ewan was set to inherit the family wealth. 
After his cousin contested the inheritance on the ground that it could only be inherited by a male heir, Ewan was forced to defend his male status in an extraordinary court case testing the legal system of the time to the limits of its understanding. In the hidden case of Ewan Forbes, Zoe Playden draws on the fields of law, medicine, psychology and biology to reveal a remarkable hidden history, uncovering for the first time records that were considered so threatening that they had to be removed from view for decades. Wow, you picked the best books. Doesn't that sound interesting? Yeah, it sounds really interesting. From a historical point of view, and who doesn't love hidden documents that are finally (laughs) revealed? (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to talk about next month? Oh, yes. Our book for January. And actually, Jane has talked about it before. It was on your list of what's coming out last month. And we both thought it sounded so good that we've picked it for January. It is Lemon by Kwon Yeo Sun. This is translated from Korean. In the summer of 2002, when Korea is abuzz over hosting the FIFA World Cup, 19-year-old Kim Hyeon is killed in what becomes known as the high school beauty murder. Two suspects quickly emerge, rich kid Shin Jong-jun, whose car Hyeon was last seen in, and delivery boy Han Manu, who witnesses Hyeon in the passenger seat of Jong-jun's car just a few hours before her death. But when Zhang Jun's alibi turns out to be solid and no evidence can be pinned on Manu, the case goes cold. Seventeen years pass without any resolution for those who knew and loved Heon, and the grief and uncertainty take a cruel toll on her sister Dayon in particular. Unable to move on with her life, Dayon tries in her own twisted way to recover some of what she's lost, ultimately setting out to find the truth of what happened. Told at different points in time from the perspectives of Dayon and two of Heon's classmates, Lemon loosely follows the structure of a detective novel, but finding the perpetrator is not the main objective here. Instead, the work explores grief and trauma, raising important questions about guilt, retribution, and the meaning of death and life. Good choice, us. So that's our book for January. Go ahead and place it on hold so you've got something to read over the holidays. And don't forget to tune in in a couple of weeks. We'll have our wrap-up. Top picks for the year. Yeah, 2021 end-of-year wrap-up. Thanks. See ya. That's what I read. There were some other things, but I won't bother talking about them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you read that book. And I'm I knew so you glad you loved it. <laughs> do you want to do a little bit of news? Yeah, I'm trying to come down from that. <laughs> <laughs> do you find that in the library when you recommend a book to somebody and then they say they read it? Yes. And, and yeah, that's how you yeah. know we should, we're, we're in the right job. <laughs> yeah.